Hello and welcome to the Hearsay Sidebar, a podcast where the Hearsay team gets together around the microphone to talk about the legal side of what's in the news. The Hearsay Sidebar is a podcast by Lext Australia, a legal innovation company that makes the law easier to access and easier to practice. Hello listeners, the episode of Sidebar that you're about to hear is a snippet from a much longer interview on our CPD podcast, Hearsay the Legal Podcast, which can be found at htlp.com.au. If you're interested in hearing the full interview, head over to our website and sign up for a subscription. Alex, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me, David. Uh, it's really exciting to be here and to kind of spread the word more broadly across across disciplines. Yeah, it is very exciting. Our producer, Ross, and I are big behavioural economics and behavioural insights geeks. I listen to a lot of behavioural science podcasts. I'm sure I'm going to listen to an episode of No Stupid Questions with Angela Duckworth on the way home. So I'm very excited to be doing my own one. Now, Alex, you are a psychologist by training. I am. Tell us how you came to be in the role of Acting Managing Director at BIT. Yeah, I talked about how I got into the role of just being a member of BIT because it was a bit of an accident to start off with. And then, yeah, how I ended up becoming the acting MD here, which has been a really fun experience. But yeah, with lots of challenges and sort of exciting opportunities. As you mentioned, I'm a psychologist by training. I did a PhD, which looked at how we get evidence-based mental health treatments into the National Health Service in the UK, particularly for uh, anxiety and depression, because that's something that was really interesting to me. So the idea of evidence-based medicine is something that many of your listeners may not be aware of or may be aware of but it's basically the idea that you know there are millions of treatments that we could offer people but some of them have not been shown to work in a sort of scientific process through something called a, a randomized control trial whereby you sort of randomly allocate people to different conditions and then see what the outcomes are, usually against the placebo. Sadly, it turns out that a lot of the things that we do in a healthcare system haven't really been shown to work. So when I learned that, whilst finishing my undergrad course, I thought, well, this seems a bit of a a travesty, really, and quite a scary thing to learn about. So I did my PhD looking at how we can change that process. And one of the things that came out of that, that work was that Actually, if you want to change policy, which is what you know we're talking about when we're talking about getting people to use certain treatments over others, then being in academia is probably not actually the best place for you to be. You want to be in that policy-making world so that you can make a difference. And uh, while I was doing that PhD, there was a research fellowship that was put up, and they said, do you want to join the Behavioral Insights team for three months? to see whether or not you can take some of the lessons that you've learned in a, in a psych department to public policy. And that was uh, about 11 years ago now, just coming up to 11 years ago. So you can see that that three-month period definitely took a little bit longer. Yeah, absolutely. And the rest is history. Indeed, indeed. I think that is going to be surprising to a lot of our listeners that many of those treatments that are available, especially sort of in the mental health discipline, might not have an evidentiary basis Hmm. for efficacy. And I think by analogy, we see a lot of that in the legal system as well, that there might be new interventions, whether that's in sentencing or in diversionary measures away from the traditional criminal justice system, or even in civil law, that maybe don't have an evidentiary basis before Hmm. they've, they've been introduced. Certainly, I can think of one in, in my field of insolvency. Some of our listeners might be familiar with the white elephant of the small business restructuring process, which hasn't really been used at all. Although maybe that's an experiment in itself that uh, has been proven not to work. Now, some of our listeners might be familiar with behavioural science and, in fact, what BIT does. Mm. But for those who aren't, there's 
A few different terms that are sometimes used interchangeably or sometimes used as, as distinct concepts like behavioural science, behavioural economics, hmm. behavioural insights, nudges. Let's start with those first three, behavioural science, behavioural economics, behavioural insights. What do we mean by those terms and where does BIT fit in? Mm, absolutely. So I'll start backwards. So I think actually BIT coined the idea of behavioural insights to start off with. And there was actually quite a long debate as to what we should call ourselves because behavioural economics was something that was becoming really prominent in the policymaking community at the time. Mm. And that was really because when our team was set up in 2010, we were dealing with the outcomes of the global financial crisis, which obviously bit really hard in the UK mm. and globally, less so in Australia. You keep finding stuff in the in the ground that's super, super valuable that just kind of <laughs> floats the country through. But yeah, so th- through that process, a lot of people were doing some soul searching when it came to, you know, what is it that we actually know about economic theory? And that really led to people looking at different ideas at the time and working out, you know, what can we learn from different disciplines mm. to create better policies? And that coincided as well with a a coalition government coming in in 2010 between the centre-right Conservative Party and the centre-left Liberal Democrats. And neither of those parties, having just replaced the the Labour government at the time, wanted to introduce a load of legislation. So they were stuck in this place where government, for those of you who don't know, is usually full of economists and lawyers. And some of the tools that were really being relied on by economists and lawyers, so that economic theory that I talked about and also legislation didn't seem as available to them. Mm. So they started looking around for new ideas and that's when a book called Nudge came out by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, Richard Thaler now being a a Nobel laureate and Cass Sunstein having worked with the Obama administration and now actually the the, the Biden administration in the US. They started to espouse these ideas around how you can use behavioral economics to create better policy. So at that point, that seemed like a really good answer. So there was a debate as to whether or not we should be called the behavioural economics team. And actually the team in, in the federal government here is called BETA or the behavioural economics team of the Australian government. But we generally wanted a much broader approach. So you mentioned I'm a psychologist. Uh, our CEO, David Halpin, is also a psychologist. So we wanted to make sure that much broader lessons were being taken. So we thought maybe it could be the behavioural science team problem with that is that it would end up being the, the BS team, which you generally want to avoid. No. Now, you know, everything gets shortened in government, and if it can be used against you, then it can. So, yeah, behavioral insights was the term that was used because it is a much broader sort of set of fields of, and disciplines, and it also focuses on the sort of action that you would take. So behavioral science talks about the literature that you would be taking from. Behavioral insights is focusing on the fact that that turns into then a practical insight that you can use to design a better better policy, better program, better service, and whatnot. Great that you avoided the soundbite of the BS team. (laughs) But that name, Behavioural Insights, really does reflect that even the lessons of behavioural economics are multidisciplinary, correct? Because before the work of Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein and other behavioural economists, dominant thinking, and I suppose still the, the dominant paradigm in economic theory, is that people are rational actors. They behave rationally in their own self interest having regard to all the information available to them. And the insight in behavioural economics, am I right, is that, well, we don't always behave rationally. Sometimes we behave quite irrationally because of the heuristics and biases that we all fall prey to. 
Yeah, I mean, I think generally we try and avoid the term rational and irrational in this setting because it can be used quite pejoratively to say, mm. well, you're making this decision and, you know, that makes you an idiot because you're irrational. And it's, I always find it's quite an odd framing where you've got an economic model and you're saying, well, this economic model here is designed to describe the behaviour of human beings, but actually human beings don't kind of adhere to that model. Therefore, it's the human beings that are idiots rather than the model that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I do think that's something we need to be a little Bad bit Bad human beings. About. Why can't you be more like the hypothetical human being that behaves like the model? Exactly, exactly. Which, when your job is to describe human behaviour, then there's probably other things that <laughs> you should look to to yeah, explain the errors. But I think one of the key things is that world in which we live in has lots and lots of information that's just thrown at us, right? And quite often when we think about how easy it is to pass that information and make decisions based on it, it means that we just really don't have the computing power to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So quite often when we're talking about, you know, making sure that people are making decisions based on useful information, we should really make it as easy for them as possible to reduce that load, that cognitive load for them to make effective decisions. And similarly, there's a lot of talk about heuristics and biases in the field of behavioral economics and social psychology, which are essentially shortcuts that people use to make decisions. I mean, part of that is also due to the fact that we just don't have that much processing power. Mm. So our brains have really optimized themselves to make decisions based on the information that we have that in many, many cases are actually quite effective decision-making heuristics. The problem is, is that the world in which we live in is very different to the one in which we evolved in, and therefore some of them will lead to predictable errors, and they are errors. I love the way you've reframed that from rational and irrational to kind of the, the tools that we use to make sense of a complicated world. Because you're right, these heuristics are very useful. Our pattern recognition skills help us to tell which berries are safe to eat and which aren't, and you know, often are quite useful in the modern world. But mm. as you say, sometimes they lead to us you know, seeing the face of Christ in a piece of toast and seeing patterns that aren't really there. Exactly, exactly. Behavioural economics and I suppose the kind of interventions that are informed by behavioural economics have sometimes been described as benevolent paternalism or libertarian paternalism. And in your description of the political context in which these kind of policy interventions came to the fore, I can definitely see the label libertarian paternalism in what was happening there because we don't have the tools of affect behaviour through lawmaking of prohibit and enforce and mandate, but we can encourage what we see as the you know, more desirable or, or the more efficient behaviour. Talk for a minute about this label of benevolent or libertarian paternalism. Is it a fair characterisation? Do some of that brilliant rephrasing that you've, <laughs> you've just helped us with. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting point. And I think the idea of nudges really does fit into that libertarian paternalism idea, which is basically the idea that a nudge is something that fits into choice architecture. And choice architecture is really the way in which you might present any decision to a decision maker or any policy maker. You know, if you're going out to have breakfast or you go to a cafe, you know, the menu of choices could actually affect what choice you make. So that's a really sort of basic example of just that information, the way it's presented to you can affect how you behave. But that is true for many, many different things. So if government were to create a new subsidy or some sort of new process or, or program, you going online and the form that you would fill in is also a case of choice architecture. So the way that nudges then fit in is like how, what are the changes that you can make within that choice architecture that might shift your behavior one way or the other? 
And that is really a very deliberate way of changing that choice architecture. But it's also worth considering that in designing that process, you are already making decisions that will affect whatever decision that that the person who is going through that system will make, right? So there are no real neutral choices Mm. when you're designing that program. So it's worth acknowledging that essentially we are all choice architects in many cases. Even if you're sending an email to someone, you're, you're waiting for a response from that. Essentially, you're asking someone for a decision, and the way in which you've written that email will affect that person's decision. So by the fact that there is no neutral choice means that actually if you're just more aware of those biases and heuristics, then you can do your job better. Hmm. Now, what does that mean for the idea of benevolent paternalism? It's also worth thinking about the context in which the idea of libertarian paternalism came up, which is in the States, where actually paternalism is a very dirty word. Mm. Maybe not a very dirty word, but a pretty dirty word, which is very much not the case in Australia or in, in, in Europe. And in the UK, it's sort of in the middle. So I think a lot of the ideas around libertarian paternalism came out because people didn't really want to introduce a lot of paternalistic ideas. But in other places, it's all right. And generally, we don't lean on the term nudges as much as others. Actually, in academia, it tends to be used more often because what we generally think is the behavioral insights approach is much more about how do you understand how human beings behave so you can design better policies. And that could actually be much bigger than a nudge. In fact, sometimes we've called for taxes like the sugar tax in, in the UK, which we were quite involved in in those discussions or even sometimes bans because that could be a much more behaviorally informed way of understanding how human beings interact more of a shove than a nudge i mean yeah sometimes sometimes something much harder is is needed and it's worth just thinking about how actually human beings respond to that because it could not actually go to plan i mean we talk about mandates as being like the ultimate thing you can do but the very fact that we have crimes occurring and that <laughs> lawyers exist means that even actually a mandate isn't enough to change people's behaviour. Right? Yeah, it doesn't guarantee compliance with the mandate. Absolutely. As we've seen time and again with mask mandates over the past couple of years. Indeed. Actually, on that point, so I mean, there's some, some interesting examples, even the way in the way that legislation is is used once it's actually put out there. So the smoking ban in the UK is a great example of this. Where for a while, at least, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but you go to a pub. And it was really obvious overnight that people weren't smoking in there, right? So the smoking ban came in and suddenly no one was smoking in pubs. It's worth thinking about how was that actually enacted? And what was the mechanism by which people's behavior changed? It was the fact that it was very widely advertised that this ban had come into place, but most of it was actually being enacted through social pressure. So Mm. if you tried to light up in a pub, then someone would very quickly tell you to put it out. But that wasn't because there was a fine or the police were there. It was just that sort of social and community pressure that led to that ban. I mean, what a a great example to make, though. I I do think that's a great point, that even a mandate can be persuasive more than mandatory Mm. in the sense that it is a public condemnation in the strongest possible terms that might be very persuasive in affecting behaviour change, that you don't have to have a police officer standing behind every person who's otherwise going to be participating in that behaviour. I think we see the same thing with masks. We see it with masks. I know that the public support for seatbelt mandates actually changed once it was introduced because we generally think that attitudes will change people's behaviour, but quite often actually people's behaviour will change their attitudes.
You've been listening to the Hearsay Sidebar. Sidebar is our fun, free podcast about legal news. But if you're an Australian lawyer, you can sign up to the original Hearsay the Legal podcast at htlp.com.au. That's htlp.com.au to get all 10 of your CPD points by listening to entertaining interviews with lawyers, judges and other leading figures in the law on demand, on the go and at an unbeatable price. That was HTLP for Hearsay the Legal podcast. Hearsay Sidebar is produced by Ross Davis with help from Jacob Malby. Make sure you follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you'll be notified whenever we release a new episode. If you like the show, leave us a rating on your preferred podcast platform because it helps other law geeks just like you find us. Thanks for listening.